It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Welcome to the podcast formerly known as Access Atlanta from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. You may have noticed the name on our logo has changed a little bit. That's just a placeholder because we're currently developing a brand new show that will have a new name and a new sound. And this week, we're going to start things off with a little sneak peek at what we're working on. Here, I'm joined by our food, dining, and living editor, LaGaia Figueres, and our entertainment reporter, Rodney Ho, to talk about some of the week's hottest topics. First up on this week's episode, we'll tackle some hot topics. Uh, Eight Arm has closed, and they closed a long time before they were originally planning to. I know. Eight Arm. So for those that don't know, right, Eight Arm is in Midtown, right across the street from Pont City Market. And yeah, they were supposed to close October 8th. They announced the closure initially in June. And then all of a sudden, we found out over the weekend, they posted on social media up Sunday was our last day so of course the question is why why did you guys close and um ultimately they said well what had happened during um during this period was from june on was they quit their initial food program whatever they had going on and kind of switched over to a pop-up type program and also bringing in resident chefs big name really talented folks and not even ones from from atlanta area um but they just had the the issue was all of the different dates coordinating the with those visiting chefs could be really confusing. You need some consistency in terms of, we know hours of operation matter. And so they just were like, you know what, it's it's time. We can't handle this. Plus, um, they figured in the end, they wanted to go out kind of quietly rather than have this big shebang, that it would be this intimate where they would end and begin with Maricela Vega, which is, you know, right. their chef there. Yeah. And, um, you know, their, their um, close friends and, of course, employees. So, yeah, so they're... Um, you know, eight arm is done. Although I do have to say that, um, you know, the folks behind eight arm, Nanli and, and skip Engelbrecht, they've got fishmonger going and now we know that they're going to be, you know, fishmonger number two is coming into, um, Pratt Pullman district and they have small fry coming, um, in Atlanta dairy. So that'll be opening up. So there's other places that we can get taste of what, what those guys do for the city of Atlanta, but it is a little bit bittersweet that it yeah, is out. It's really sad. I mean, it, it all happened because the, the whole plot of land there basically and, has which been is sold. still kind of right. A question of what's going to happen with these businesses. I mean, I think 
think that's still sort of up in the air, right? right. But yeah, we do know that eight arm for sure that it is no more. Yeah, that whole that whole big block that stretch. Is, that's right. I mean, it's probably more than a block. right. Yeah, that was sold to the development company as Cartel Properties, and we're still following that story. Yeah, yeah, and Paris on Ponce is there. Um, uh, Friends Bar. There's uh, MJQ, I believe, is in that. Yep, it was that under one as that well. parking right. lot next yep. to it. Pa- Paris shut down, didn't it? Did it? I thought it had a fire or something. Yeah. Well, they. I think they did at one. But did they point. reopen I th- at some point? I, I'm not positive. I wouldn't swear to that. I mean, I've walked by it so many times on the Beltline, but I, you know, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that there was a certain older well, charm to that area yeah. that probably we're going to lose, I guess. Possibly. Um, but I mean, eight arm, the loss of eight arm is, is really significant for Atlanta's dining scene because those guys were so, I would say cutting edge in their way that they thought about, um, dining concepts, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they switched them multiple times and they're, you know, they mean, they've got James Beard nomination because of, um, how forward thinking they are were were in terms of of their food. So, um, so yeah, we'll see. I know those guys are so crazy. Creative, so I, you know, I, I, I know that great things are going to happen, but yeah, in the meantime, we don't have an eight arm. Yeah, it's it's kind of sad. It's like losing that because I, I loved I loved eight arm and and the recent loss of Gato, which I you know I loved. It's, yeah, you know, it's it's switching over, but. Um, you know, things come and go. I was going to say, you know, that's sort of the restaurant world too. So it's ever yeah. evolving. Yeah, it's it's kind of sad. But anyway, um, and on to uh, another story that has been going on for a while. Um, Davi Kremens, uh, formerly of The Burt Show, um, was let go. Um, and uh, I guess we're still hearing What's going on there? All right, yeah, she was fired in June. Um, Bert on you know on air explained that there was a chemistry issue with her and some you know an unnamed staff, but obviously she must have been the primary reason <laughs> that it was there were issues because she was the one who got fired, not anybody right. else. Um, so she kind of stayed quiet for a while. She just started a podcast last week and kind of discussed it. Uh, you know, she said that she didn't take a severance because she wanted to speak openly about the situation because I think usually when you sign a severance, you have to sign a non-disparagement clause. So you can't, like, badmouth each other. Right. Um, but she kind of explained, without naming names, she still, you know, there was one person that clearly got her goat <laughs> that was yeah. deaf and but she said that this person you know caused her a lot of pain she felt ostracized she didn't specify why or specific you know i think again she probably had attorneys tell her what she could say without sure. being defamatory but she made it sound like she felt isolated or she felt misunderstood and i think you know you know her in her mind you know it just caused a lot of anxiety and tense situations behind the scenes and you know from and i spoke with bird and a couple of the other folks on staff and they said they, they saw her completely differently they saw her you know i guess seeing things that they didn't see so to speak like she was making mountains out of molehills in their brain like they you know whatever she thought somebody had said wasn't really what they meant type of situation right where, and then she just got very sensitive in, in their minds and in her mind of course it's her reality their reality and her reality came out very different so ultimately you end up being either team davi or you end up being team bert so i don't know right. it's just kind of one of those you know look i mean the show has always dealt with kind of this reality show conceit of authenticity so this right. now is a debate over who's being authentic here yeah. Well, yeah, that well it's interesting. I mean, I'm wondering I haven't 
I haven't like looked into it too deeply, but what what seems to be the consensus on on social media? Who's on whose side? Does is there is it a fifty fifty thing? It's really or? hard to tell. I mean, yeah. I don't I don't know. I think it's split. Yeah, uh, a lot. And we'll see whether this impacts, you know, Bert's ratings, of course, you know, Bert, right. Bert's been around for over 20 years, still super successful, you yeah. know, the number one show among women in Atlanta forever. Right. You know, he got, I think the last I checked 25, 54, he was like a 16 share. I mean, the guy's still, yeah. even though he's turned over, you know, most of his staff and his on-air staff has switched over, you know, Jeff Dollar's gone. Uh, well, that's you know, the all thing. Those guys, all it's those folks changed. Gone. Melissa is gone. So many gone. times. Oh, yeah. He's years. changed it's staff a lot, which is impressive that he was able to find a way to sort of rejigger him, get a younger cat. I mean, he's in his mid-50s. Most of his cast are in their 30s. Right. So he's managed to find a way to sort of um, reinvigorate and reinvent himself and stay relevant because, you know, the target audience for his show is younger, is far younger than who he is. Right. You know, yeah. he looks pretty good for his age, and but you know, still, it, it gets to be a challenge. I don't know how many more years he'll do this, but as long as it's successful and makes money, I'm sure he'll. He's right. a workaholic. He'll probably just keep on going until he can't. You right. Know? Well, and even if he wasn't there, he'd probably you know run the show one way or another. I don't know. I mean, it's his thing. I, I yeah. don't. I don't know. Without him, once he retires, I don't know what they would do. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's reinvented it so many times. But, I but mean, it's him, you know. So it's like ultimately, well, like he can't really pass it on to somebody else, and it, it will become a completely different show. So well, I, I that's don't know. True. How, I don't know what would happen post Bert. So once Bert decides to retire, or you know, move to Barbados, or whatever he wants right. to do at some point. So I mean, I'm sure he's made plenty of money. Right. <laughs> he's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I used to listen to you know the morning show oh, in the a early lot. days. In, yeah, yeah, in the early days. And, you know, I guess over the time, it probably didn't speak to me as much anymore of because of my age. Yeah, and exactly. And so that still sort enjoy of makes it. sense. It, you know, I, you know it's, it's mostly focused on relationships and stuff. I mean, yeah. it, it's always fun, silly stuff that they deal with, sometimes serious. But, yeah. you know, I, I don't I still listen every so often. Right. Yeah. Well, that's your job. Yep. <laughs> I don't listen to all the morning shows regularly, believe me. Well, anyway, so uh, yeah, that's still going on, and and I'm sure that there will be more to come about uh, uh, the whole Burt Show, Davi Kremens thing. But uh, one other thing I wanted to mention that that came up this week, I noticed on social media when uh, we just had another bridge fire. Um, oh yeah, this big Atlanta, tractor trailer right over yeah. bridge fires, <laughs> and not far from and us. I mean, we're up here yeah, on, on Northern Arc. Right. It, it, I just drove by it, uh, the Ashford Dunwoody, uh, the bridge right over Ashford Dunwoody. Yeah, and I, I, I didn't notice it. I drove by just a few minutes ago, and yep. it looked fine. I could see a little bit of a black mark on right. the bridge from where the fire was, but it looked like it wasn't damaged. Thank goodness. Yeah, I think I that. Mean, yeah, they. I know they closed it down. I believe last night, several a couple nights ago. Uh, yeah, several to, hours. To, to do like an inspection and all that to make the, sure that you they know, repaved the it. They, they did an incredibly quick job repaving yeah. the road. Yeah, but then you just hope that structurally did. We they said it was. They said well, that's why they fine, that's so. why they closed know, down last but night. I think yeah. it's Atlanta. Well, <laughs> oh, like the yeah, the Cheshire I mean, Bridge. You bridge. guys look. We've had we've seen other collapses happen. Well, here. I mean, it's, it's not a, a different. I mean, the Cheshire Bridge bridge is not hasn't been finished yet, right? It's been over a year. No, yeah, and that was that was one thing I was going to mention is the the Cheshire Bridge, Never Cheshire ended. Bridge, uh, the actual bridge. bridge there on Cheshire Bridge Road. Um, yeah, it's been closed down for over a year. We did uh, a story. A couple of our reporters. Uh, yeah, it's still several did a months story, away. Right? I believe Before in the June, and it was that was the year anniversary since it had been closed down. And it may not be op- reopened until the end of the year, right? At this point, yeah, it's, you know, I, I several think months, I think so. they were shooting for fall sometime. Uh, I don't yeah. know. I, I can't recall. I feel terrible I, for the businesses around there. That's got yeah, to be it terrible. It really must be, especially the ones that are close to the bridge. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know, because oh, you have to go disastrous. down there and then go all the way back out. 
Um, you're losing and half your business. I mean, half, yeah. you know, somebody coming from north and you're on the south side, like, well, you know, you have, yeah, you can't really. Yeah, it's not an easy detour no. either way. I mean, you have to go several miles around to get to either side of the bridge. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 not fun. And, and it's I, I just don't understand why does it take so long? I guess, you know, there's supply chain issues probably. I mean, it could be that, but I mean, it's also, it's really Atlanta. There is yeah. no other city that I have ever seen anything <laughs> like this. My husband is a civil engineer and he works in transportation and it still blows his mind the way that this, uh, the state and the city operate when it yeah. comes to transportation. Yeah. So. I mean, they got 85. They fixed that in a GIF because that's well, such a high quickly. traffic. Yeah, but yeah. consider traffic. why it happened in the first place. You should not oh, be storing. Disaster, you should not yes. be storing any of that stuff underneath right. the bridge yeah, in the first dumb. place. So yeah, there were there's some polyethylene pipes of some sort that, that caught fire after a homeless man set fire to a, an upholstered chair um, was so, what happened. Uh, yes. So, yeah, that was uh, the 85 bridge collapse. If you don't remember, that was, that was 2017. 2017. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was huge. Plus, I mean, that's that's an interstate road. So I'm sure that there were a lot High more priorities oh, made absolutely. They made it 24-7 available. work. Yeah, well, they didn't waste any time I have time to say, that. at the time, I was living pretty darn close. I was living right on Piedmont, really close to it. Luckily for me, I lived north of it. And because my work would take me north, right. thank goodness, because people who lived on the other side of that, I mean, you were just cut off. I mean, it really was like an artery that just got severed. Yeah. And the roundabout trap people's, you know, commute times doubled. It was crazy. Yeah, I imagine the surface streets were, were insane. I, I luckily, I avoided it because I could at that time. But I imagine that the surface streets were just a mess because of all the diverted traffic. Right. Well, the Ashford Dunwoody 285 thing is just... Could, it, it's one of the worst places right now anyway to travel it's in true. Atlanta I, because I feel of bad all, for anybody who was there on, uh, yeah, I think it was yeah. Tuesday yeah, night. Yeah, because all yeah. the work, there's, they're doing well, a night, ton of work night. there. Right. It involves the, the 400, 285 oh, yeah. uh, interchange. It's been, it's been a nightmare there for a couple of years now. Yeah. And they're not done yet, are they? They're no. Not. Oh, no. They're still, <laughs> they're still at, hard at work on that. Ugh. And, uh yeah, it's a mess every time we have to come up here. Oh, to... and don't forget, right around that same area was where a couple of years ago we had the um, armored car incident where the back doors flew open and all the money oh, flew yeah, out. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then the whole uh, <laughs> interstate got shut down because everybody was grabbing money. Yeah, yeah, yep. I forgot all that. It's an Atlanta that. thing, oh, that, 285. That's a classic. Yeah. So everybody just drives safe. Slow yeah. down. Yeah, two two eighty five has always been a mess. It probably always will be, uh, but you know, it, it gets us where we're going. So sometimes, Some, sometimes, or ultimately, that's a sample of what we're working on. So stay tuned in the coming weeks for more of the new podcast format, which will include this and much more. In the meantime, we'll be revisiting some of our favorite interviews from our first four years. And as we do that, we'll continue our mission to get you ready for the weekend with a roundup of some of the fun, entertaining, and educational things to do in and around Atlanta in the coming days. Let's get started with a couple of those events. The Atlanta Food and Wine Festival returns for a second year at Atlanta's historic Fourth Ward Park on Saturday and Sunday, September 17th and 18th. The all-inclusive food, wine, and cocktail tasting event is focused on the South, from Texas to the District of Columbia. Beginning on September 13th, there's a series of intimate dinners hosted by some of Atlanta's top chefs 
at seven different restaurants, including Talat Market, Lazy Betty, Iberian Pig Buckhead, Redbird, Aziza, Hattie Bees, and the Americana. And we'll also take a look at more food and drink-centric festivals in this week's Go Guide in the Friday, September 2nd Atlanta Journal-Constitution and online at AJC.com. It was their personal experience with loss that compelled Sandra Alexander and her son Silas Lex Alexander IV to keep Silas Simon Alexander III's legacy alive. The husband to Sandra and father to Silas also held a more well-known title, the legendary Atlanta radio host with a broadcast career that spanned 40 years. Alexander, who was an on-air talent for stations including Classic Soul 102.5, Magic 107.5-97.5, KISS 104.1 FM, V103, and WIGO AM, following stints in television broadcasting, died on March 1st after a nine-month battle with stage four pancreatic cancer. Now his family is honoring his memory while working to help others through the Simon Stay Positive Foundation they launched earlier this month. The official launch will take place with Simon Stay Positive Foundation Weekend Takeover, a weekend of events set for September 3rd and 4th. Read more about Simon and find out more about the weekend's events online at AJC.com. Stay tuned for more events later in the podcast, and after the featured conversation, we'll take a look at what the AJC is bringing you this week, both online and in print. But first, we'll hear about the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English. When Jennifer K. N. Heinmiller inherited the million-word project that would become the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English, its principal author had blown past several deadlines, lost his publisher, and then died. The dictionary was a unique but expensive undertaking. It represented 85 years of research that would eventually produce a 1,225-page volume weighing about 12 pounds. Bo Emerson spoke with Heinmiller about the dictionary, and he's brought us that conversation. And keep in mind that the interview we're about to hear is from last year, so any dates and events that may come up are in the past. Hi, Bo. It's Jane. How are you? I'm good. So this is a pretty fascinating uh, scholarly work. In particular, in the front of this dictionary, there's a lot of uh, discussion of, of, of etymology and texts and things that they like. Uh, they use the term a prefixing. So if you say I come a running, that's a prefixing. I right. I'm hunting you. Um, and, and in other words, they take it down to the to the uh, linguistic level. Um, but on the other hand, the it has a, a, a real uh, bouquet of citations for, for each term. And, and it gives you, uh, they take the citations from a variety of places, from recordings that the original researcher made in the 30s and 40s and uh, in the mountains, um, from uh, Civil War letters, uh, uh, from, from fiction, from uh, a variety of places. And it really tells a lot of the story of, the, of that area, which makes it a much more uh, a, a much more approachable topic not to mention that the terms that that, that, that you learn from this thing are really hilarious yeah <laughs> yeah I bet they are I know growing up I probably heard some of those uh, those terms. oh you absolutely have Shane you're from Atlanta is that correct no I'm from uh, upstate South Carolina so oh, okay well you're you're right in the middle of it yeah Walhalla and such places yes 
Yep. The, uh, uh, so you probably know what catawampus is. Oh, yes, most definitely. You know what jackleg is and what a frog strangler does. Yep. Yep. And and a frog strangler, I believe that's that's a storm, isn't it? We called it a gully washer, I think. Well, there's a variety of those <laughs> uh, those terms. A lot of weather terms in this dictionary, a lot of terms yep. for food, including I think maybe one of our writers uh, has researched a thing called a stack cake that uh, Jennifer thought had disappeared, but no, it still exists. Hmm. That's great. Well, so I, I mean, she must be a pretty uh, fascinating person to talk to. And uh, well, the the thing that's very annoying is that she's only thirty six years old, and she has this, uh, you know, this fantastic volume behind her, as well as a career as a Japanese translator, because she's fluent in Japanese, and uh, she also does language analysis for a financial tech company. Um, so it, it's she's uh, a very much of a polymath, and uh, and. And is also um, lives in Asheville. Is part of that whole uh, Appalachian uh, world. Uh, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, and uh, and she has a podcast herself too, right? I think it's called Appalachian Words, and you can find it on uh, Apple Podcasts and such. If you do, if you search her name in Appalachian Words, I think she's going to be the, one of the first things that pops up. Right. Yeah. Well, that's great. So you can find that podcast the same place you can find this. That's um, right. Listen to ours first, though. Yes. Listen to ours first. Uh, is there anything else we should know before we uh, uh, dive into the conversation with her? I think you should just jump right on in. All right. Terrific. Well, thanks so much, Bo. Thank you, Shane. So if you know what jackleg or catawampus means, you may already know how to speak Southern Appalachian, or you may want to learn more about it, in which case you need to consult a 12-pound, 10,000-entry uh, dictionary that codifies the language eight mountain states in the South. And we are lucky enough to have with us uh, the, the surviving editor and co-author of the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English. Jennifer Heinmiller, thank you so much for joining, joining us, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. And I, I should say that uh, this is a, uh, a massive volume that has, uh, this is the second edition. The first one was uh, mostly concerned with just Tennessee and North Carolina. This one expands it uh, dramatically. And it also takes advantage of the fact that uh, Y'all have spent about 85 years of research uh, on this project, um, which uh, is, is a rather uh, a lot of effort uh, made towards creating this, uh, this highly specialized dictionary. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, about the beginning of this and, and how the, the creation of the Smoky Mountain National Park had a lot to do with it? Yeah, that's right. Um, many decades of research have gone into this volume, and this is an expanded edition of the Dictionary of Smoky Mountain English, uh, which was published a couple of decades ago now. Um, and this new volume is about 30% larger than that one. Um, so even in the past uh, 10, 15 years, we've put a lot more work into it to really uh, make it a beautiful, polished, finished product that's more uh, encompassing of the entire region rather than just North Carolina, Tennessee. 
Um, when we were doing our research, uh, most recently, of course, that wasn't around 85 years ago, uh, but the last decade or two when I was involved in the project, we realized there was so much overlap and we really see these gradations of words and meanings throughout Southern Appalachia. So we wanted to really encompass more of that region to make it more inclusive. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, the founding of Great Smoky Mountains National Park actually had quite a bit to do with the birth of this project. Um, the initial research was undertaken by Joseph Hall, who was a linguist from California, and he came over originally in the 1930s to interview the people who made their homes where the national park is now. And this was just prior to the park being founded uh, when the United States government wanted to document some of the language and culture and tradition of the people because they knew they were going to build this national park and those people would eventually be removed from their uh, heritage lands. Which is uh, sort of an ironic reason to go into a preservation project. Uh, we are going to eliminate this community here, so we want to find out what they're like before we drive them away from their homes. I mean, that sounds a little extreme, but that's kind of what happened, isn't it? In a nutshell, yes, it is definitely ironic. But uh, uh, what, it, what we end up with is, is a remarkable document uh, about a very mythologized uh, area. Uh, the, and uh, there's, there's a lot of different uh, attitudes about uh, Appalachia or Appalachia if you grew up in New York as I did, the, uh, especially how you pronounce it in the first place. The, um, and, and, and a lot of them are, are way off base. You might, uh, as a result of the study that you've done, you could probably talk about a little bit of those. Um, yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's really true what you were saying, even though it is kind of an odd situation how this came to happen. We are lucky in the sense that now we do have this great record um, through the work of Hall and other people who went in either doing photography or other documentation of the region, uh, whereas, you know, other languages and varieties of language might not have that. So in a way, I'm kind of grateful to that impetus uh, for providing that basis. And now, one of the reasons uh, that you got involved is uh, you were a graduate student working with Michael Montgomery, who sort of uh, took the baton after uh, Joseph Hall uh, uh, died. And uh, he brought it up to 2019, at which point you had to take the baton. Uh, so it's kind of been a relay race to get this book to where it is now. Yeah, that's right. It, that's a very good uh, analogy. It does feel something like a relay race. Um, so the research was undertaken by Hall, of course, for all of those decades up through the 60s and 70s, really. And he published a few books on the topic, uh, but wasn't really known in the field for that uh, particular uh, branch of study. Um, although he was very interested in the phonetics of Smoky Mountain speech, as he called it. And then Michael Montgomery, uh, my co-editor, um, he decided he wanted to take Hall's work and make that the backbone of a broader volume. Um, so he really built that out. And I want to say the original volume, uh, probably between 30 and 40% of it was based on Hall's work. Um, and Hall, of course, you know, gave him his blessing and, and helped with that. Um, and then, yeah, Michael saw it to publication. And then I came on the project in late 2008, early 2009. Uh, when I was a graduate student in the linguistics program at University of South Carolina. Um, and we worked on it uh, together 
and I, I started studying lexicography, uh, which is, I guess, in a nutshell, the art and science of building dictionaries, <laughs> along with uh, my other linguistic studies. Um, and then I was named uh, co-author, co-editor around 2012, I believe, um, when we thought we were seeing the finish line in sight, uh, but little did we know it would be another uh, nine years. Um, and then, as you mentioned, Michael, uh, unfortunately passed in 2019, uh, and I was uh, fortunate to um, find a great home for it uh, at University of North Carolina Press and bring it to completion. Now, what makes this uh, uh, dictionary really fascinating to me is it's it's not just a collection of words, and it's also not just the the citations that are that tell you so much about the places uh, that these words come from, but uh, you all have have in in fact kind of uh, analyzed the the syntax and the and the grammar and um, and the way that that certain words and certain phrases. Uh, get incorporated in, into the language. The way that uh, comma running is, uh, is is kind of an example of using the a running, a gunning, uh, a cooking uh, as a, uh, it's a regular feature of the language. I mean, there's a, a whole bunch of other examples of this. And it, you really treat it as if it's, as if it has its own grammatical rules, which I guess it does. It does indeed. Yeah. And the example you're giving, we call that uh, a prefixing, excuse me, a prefixing or a prefixing. Yeah. Right. It is very rule oriented, um, just like any language or any variety of any language. Um, and that was one of the pieces of the dictionary that we felt was really important to include. Um, so there is a pretty hefty grammatical survey, as we call it, in the front matter of the dictionary. And a lot of this is based on some of Hall's research, also some of Michael's research, and then some of my research as well. Um, so we tried to provide um, a fairly complete picture of that. But as you mentioned, there are a lot of rules. Um, there's a lot of research that could still be conducted in that area, I believe. Now, of course, a lot of that would be a little bit too uh, high flown for the average reader. And the average reader is probably uh, maybe not the, not the customer for a uh, you know, $169 uh, dictionary. Uh, but then, then again, the, the, the citations themselves that draw from Civil War letters, for example, and from interviews and from the, the great recordings that, that Hall did, um, that, that's a very different story. And they're, they're, it's a great narrative uh, about, about that world. So even people who are not interested in grammar and uh, etymology and such would find, uh, would find a lot to read in this book. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of our primary objectives in designing this expanded edition was to make it as appealing to as broad an audience as possible. Uh, we want everybody from genealogists to historians to linguists to your grandparents who maybe grew up in the area or maybe their grandparents grew up in the area and they remembered certain fragments of words and, and games from their childhood. Um, we wanted it to be as much a browsing volume where you can just have it as a coffee table book. And it's it's really a beautiful book. If I do say so myself, I think it would look <laughs> lovely on a coffee table. Uh, but at the same time, we wanted to make it um, somewhat scholarly as well, or very scholarly, really, uh, in an approachable way so that researchers could use it as well. This is Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We'll continue with more of our conversation about the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English. But first, here's more of our list of things to do and see. In 2000, 
DragonCon co-founder Pat Henry spied a small Salvation Army parade in downtown Atlanta and thought, we could do that. So the next year, he invited some Star Wars and Star Trek groups, Netherworld Haunted House characters, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show acting troupe Lips Down on Dixie to march from Centennial Olympic Park to the Marriott Marquis on Saturday morning of DragonCon. About 100 people showed up to the seemingly makeshift parade. The Star Trek crew good-naturedly threw Beanie Babies at the Star Wars group yelling Ewok attack. Drag queens did the time warp. The parade, over four blocks, lasted all of 20 minutes. Spectators were largely incidental, but many of those who took part loved it, and each year the parade has grown in size, length, and scope, evolving into a distinctly Atlanta institution. This year's parade will be the first since 2019 with no COVID-19 restrictions. The parade didn't happen in 2020, and last year's version only allowed DragonCon ticket holders to watch in person. Attendees this year will see 57 different groups covering everything from dragons to vikings. All 3,250 individual spots were quickly filled up in February. There are also slots for 50 floats and vehicles. Find out more about the parade and what you'll see this year online at AJC.com. Now it's time for this week's adoptable pet from the folks at Lifeline, who run the Fulton and DeKalb shelters along with the Lifeline Community Animal Center. You'll flourish with Floor by your side. This cutie has a gorgeous black coat with the prettiest pointed ears. A staff member shared that Floor is sweet, playful, and loves food, but then who doesn't? We're sure there's even more to love and learn about Floor. Come meet her today at DeKalb County Animal Services at 3280 Chambly Dunwoody Road in Chambly. You'll find a photo of Floor and a direct link for more info on the story page for this podcast on AJC.com. This is Access Atlanta from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The facts matter now more than ever. Get unlimited digital access to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution so you know what's really going on. And you're helping us fulfill our mission to bring you the news that's important to you. Subscribe today at subscribe.ajc.com podcast and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com podcast to join the community for just 99 cents. Let's head back to our interview about the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English. The the, uh, the utilizing uh, the uh, Civil War letters uh, and there's there's a lot of those. You might be able to uh, correct me on the number, but um, and also interviews with people uh, that that Hall encountered, many of whom were born in the 1800s. Some of them as early as 1840 um, gives a, a a lot of this sort of old world uh, terms, many of which I suppose have have disappeared. Uh, but but luckily they were caught before they went away um, as a result of that kind of thing. And this is something that uh, that's one of your specialties is sort of catching uh, a, a, a dialect for it before it vanishes. Um, you did the same thing with uh, uh, the people who, uh, from an island in the Okinawans, from what I understand. Yes, that's true. When I was a graduate student, uh, my focus was actually on um, an indigenous language or dialect, depending on your perspective, Right. Uh, the island of Miyakojima in the Okinawan archipelago of Japan. Um, yes, I'm very interested in that. And um, you mentioned the Civil War letters. Um, that was a big part of my research uh, with this dictionary project. And I spent countless hours um, 
in the basements of the Thomas Cooper Library at the University of South Carolina uh, and at other um, institutions, going through literally thousands of these letters. Um, and it was, uh, it was remarkable to read their words in their own hand and uh, really be able to capture those words that otherwise you know, might not be around or have taken on different meaning today. I would guess some of those uh, letters were kind of heartbreaking too. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, there was a lot of loneliness and solitude and um, especially some of the later letters uh, where you might have question from one soldier and then you see that the letters just abruptly stop and you're not sure what happened. It was you know, almost like living a little real life soap opera every time I would go and do this research. Um, and it was such a, a visceral connection to the past. Um, it was really an honor and a privilege to be able to do that. Now you grew up uh, on the uh, on the coast of North Carolina and uh, moved to Ohio uh, when you were a, a kid. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I was born in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, lived in Ohio as a kid. Also Louisville, Kentucky. Um, yeah, I spent part of my summers in East Tennessee. Uh, but I never really lived in the Appalachian region as a child. So, and you were telling me earlier, the, um, uh, the, the people in Ohio listened to this uh, girl from Wilmington talk and thought she sounded like she was from another planet. And you did the best you could to expunge that accent. And that is kind of what has happened, I would guess, to a lot of the Appalachian terms and phrases and, and just in the, in the speech itself, because people have purposefully uh, tried to sort of modify and normalize themselves who are from this, from this area. And that must have, been, must have made it even harder to do, do the work that you wanted to do. Absolutely, yeah, uh, you hit on a really important point there. Um, linguistic assimilation is very important in society, whether we like it or not. There's such an inextricable link between language and power, language and privilege. Um, I was able to recognize it immediately, you know, as a five-year-old child uh, when I moved to Ohio. And I remember consciously trying to mimic my classmates. And I was, uh, I think I was more or less successful in that until I moved <laughs> back south. I'm in Asheville now, so I <laughs> feel like I can relax a bit now. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, of a tragedy though. And, uh, and the, and the question, you know, I, I, I asked you earlier is how much, uh, how much of the, of the language uh, still survives and what are some of the, some of the examples where it has, it still sort of bubbles up in, uh, in the national tongue. I wonder, like, what would be some places where we would see words that were native to those mountains? That's a great question. Um, we do have certain I guess certain domains where we have the language more preserved than in other places, um, such as uh, music or other performative venues. Um, but thinking about it on a national level, um, words or structures that would be at least identifiable, if not necessarily used by the general public, um, like you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, the A prefixing. Um, not everyone uses it, but of course, if you hear somebody say storms are coming, everybody knows what that means. They know right. that it's a serious storm. Um, you also have other things like um, food items. Um, some of those terms are just, they've stuck around because the food item has stuck around, such as uh, cat head biscuits. Um, 
Now, I'm not sure if those exist outside of this region, but oh, yeah. you do see them on the menu here. And what makes a cat head biscuit a cat head biscuit? It's the size of a cat's head. We like our biscuits <laughs> big. <laughs> so uh, that's that's a good biscuit then. And now I have heard uh, betwixt uh, and between, and that that's certainly Appalachian origins. Yes, yeah, you will hear betwixt and between uh, quite a bit. Um, and you'll hear some of the kind of tongue-in-cheek things like um, one that I actually heard recently uh, in the field, so to speak, was uh, it don't make a diff-bitterance. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, how does that one go? <laughs> <laughs> if if something makes no difference, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other, it uh -huh. don't make a diff-bitterance. <laughs> a diff-bitterance. And so in ways, that's, that's a typical Appalachian um, uh, 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 conceit, which is they'll take a word and add uh, add a couple of syllables to it or turn them around, like edumacation. I don't know whether that qualifies, but something like flusterate. If you're frustrated, you're even more frustrated if you're flusterated. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, oftentimes a humorous way of dealing with, well, a, a frustrating situation, <laughs> just to kind of, you know, mix things up a bit and add a little humor in. So, and uh, the, like the word catawampus, uh, probably probably easy to figure out what it means, but what would you say the proper definition of catawampus is? Catawampus, uh, we have a couple of senses of that, but I think the one that I hear uh, most often is if something's kind of catawampus, it's kind of cockeyed, it's uh, not quite straight, doesn't quite fit, something's a bit off about it. Yeah, and uh, the we we were talking earlier about the the terms. There's food terms. There's weather terms. There's work terms. Oh, yes. Terms. I uh, I found a, a, a variety of words that uh, all describe different kinds of rain, which is appropriate if you live in a rainforest. Frog strangler was one of my favorites, and uh, uh, trash mover I liked because uh, 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 it's uh, probably that's what it does as well as uh, that's what it is. Yeah, exactly, um, sadly. <laughs> and I think a lot, of that, a lot of that also probably has to do with when the rivers flood uh, because right. there's so many structures along the river. Um, yeah, when those flood, they will move the trash. And then you have other colorful uh, uh, words for rainstorms like that. Like you mentioned, frog strangler, frog drowner, gully washer. Now, and, and then again, a trash mover can also be uh, by, uh, uh, by corollary, an energetic person, somebody who is also a, uh, like, a like a storm. Um, uh, reading from one of your definitions there, how, how, is that a positive or a negative thing? Well, I think that's up speaker in the situation. <laughs> right. Kind of like bless his heart. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, did uh, did you uh, did you find any words that ended up sort of attaching themselves to your own vocabulary, your own lexicon? Did you uh, uh, do you find yourself using them as a result of uh, of studying them? That's a good question. Um, you know, one of the ones that I found in my own research was um, "shake the cat" or "cat shaking." Uh, which has to do with uh, quilt making, actually. 
there was a tradition um, when, uh, I forget, there's a couple of variations of how this goes. Uh, but typically the women at a gathering uh, would take a quilt and they would all hold on to the edge of it, you know, around the, the perimeter of the quilt. And <laughs> they would put a poor cat in the middle oh, of it God. and they would, they would bounce it around and then wherever the cat jumped off, whoever it was closest to, that would be the woman who would have the first child among the group of the women or, you know, <laughs> kind of like a fortune telling exercise, but it, it always struck me as pretty cruel. Um, I'm actually involved in animal rescue volunteer work. Um, <laughs> so sometimes I'll use that in a very facetious way. <laughs> the, the uh, uh, well, it's, it's one way to find out uh, uh, the, uh, a lot of answers to a lot of questions. Um, the, <laughs> I, I, uh, so, and, and we talked about this before, but do you see, um, do you see this sort of language in danger of disappearing? Has it already disappeared? I would say it is unfortunately on its way to disappearing, although I do think it will be preserved uh, indefinitely in play, uh, country music. Uh, we do have some kind of gatekeepers of certain certain flavors of Appalachian English, such as Dolly Parton. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, you don't hear it that much in everyday conversation, especially in bigger cities, uh, even within the region, um, such as Asheville. Uh, but if you go a little bit outside the city limits, it is definitely still there. There's still a presence. Hey, are there any Dolly Parton lyrics that are uh, used as citations in the, uh, in the book? You caught me off guard with that one. I'd like to say yes, but none come to mind. I will have to get back to you on that. I hope so. <laughs> the uh, uh, I, I remember one of her uh, explanations for how you were how how you could wash in a tin tub in a house that only had one room was you had to you pull your trousers up and you wash up as far as possible and then you pull your 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 dress down and you wash down as far as possible and then when nobody's looking you wash possible. Great. <laughs> she's uh, she's a, a great resource. You know, one of the things that also we talked about, and, and uh, I'm not going to hold you forever here, but the uh, the the whole region is um, is kind of a center of a lot of myth making, and you've got the Hatfields and the McCoys, and you've got uh, sure. you've got the the scary characters from Deliverance, and uh, You've uh, you've got a uh, uh, this this sort of mythologized uh, uh, Chaucerian speakers who supposedly would be recognized by uh, anyone from Elizabethan England. They traveled far enough into the mountains. Um, you've you've pointed out that that in fact is a lot of hogwash. There are no Elizabethan speakers in the mountains in Appalachia uh, or Appalachia. But uh, the uh, but the reason we seem wedded to doing this. Why is that? Yes, it's hogwash indeed. Um, people in Appalachia speak no more Elizabethan than your typical uh, American. <laughs> um, people do like to cling to that. I think uh, Appalachia is still seen as, as you said, this kind of uh, place full of mythology and you have the mountains, which are, you know, by turns romantic and spooky, groves uh, that hide their secrets. And I think a lot of it also um, goes to kind of the noble savage trope 
um, where you know we have these backwards people, but actually underneath it all, they're close to Shakespeare and Queen Elizabeth, and it's it's just not true. The culture developed, you know, like any culture, um, and you know we have modern conveniences here, like anywhere else. Although we do have mountains that are more beautiful than many parts of the country, I will say that. Aha! Uh -huh. There's mythologizing right there. Although I think. <laughs> <laughs> if it's fact, uh, it ain't it ain't myth. So, uh, and I, I will agree that they are beautiful. Um, Jennifer Heinmiller, uh, you created a great book, and I appreciate you taking time to uh, chat with us about it. Um, and tell us uh, where folks can find uh, find this book and and a variety of forms that they can find it in. Sure. Um, yeah, you can order the book uh, from the University of North Carolina Press website directly. Um, you can find it at local bookstores. Now, it is a huge volume. You may have to do a special order for it, uh, or there's always Amazon or Barnes and & Noble. And uh, if, if you're getting uh, uh, 10 of them delivered the, the way your dad did one day, how much is a box of those going to probably weigh? 120 pounds, thereabouts? That's about right. Yep, at 12 pounds a pop, it's... Um, it's pretty hefty. So if you need a workout, I recommend ordering multiple volumes. Well, I admire your father for carrying those inside. And I appreciate- <laughs> So do I. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate you taking time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. The AJC brings you the best of what's happening in and around Atlanta on AJC.com, along with deeper looks at trends in arts and entertainment and compelling looks at lost bits of history. Here's a taste of what you'll find there. Any new venture carries an element of risk, but when Chef Soraya Khoury launched Hen Mother Cookhouse in May 2018, it was gutsy. The space she selected for her breakfast and lunch concept, a strip mall in Johns Creek, was hardly a dining destination. I had so many people in my ear saying so many places have failed there, she recalled. It was also her first time owning a restaurant, and she hadn't had much time to develop a local following among diners having recently relocated from the West Coast to Atlanta to serve as executive chef for the new Rumi's Kitchen location at Avalon in Alpharetta. But it only took a few years for the restaurant to peck its way up the brunch ladder. Find out all about Hen Mother Cookhouse in this week's Living and Arts section in the Sunday Atlanta Journal-Constitution on September 4th, or find it online at AJC.com and in the Sunday e-paper. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's political cartoonist, Mike Lukovich, has a new book coming September 6th called The Twisted History of the GOP. We'll hear from the Pulitzer Prize winner on this new collection of cartoons in a story coming early next week in the living section of the print edition of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and online at AJC.com. If you're listening to this podcast on AJC.com, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode, and you'll be among the first to hear our new format when we relaunch in late summer. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn, the theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Ewan, and I'm your host and the AJC's arts and entertainment editor, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more great interviews and events.